We're just going to read one verse as our text, but boy, this verse is just packed with good stuff. John chapter 1, verse 14, let's read. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear and receive what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. I lift up other life-giving churches, and I pray blessing upon them. Grow them, increase them, protect them, even as you protect us. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I ask that you draw them to a place of repentance that not one of them is lost. Pray all of these things in the only name that matters, the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. And, and as you're being seated, why don't you just turn to the person right there beside you and say, get ready, this is going to be really good. Yeah. Now, you may have to make that as a faith statement, but that's okay too, all right? For the next few minutes, I want to focus in on just one part of this verse that we just read. It's the phrase, and we saw his glory. That word glory is one that gets used a lot in the church, but it's a word that most people don't stop and think about very often, and rarely do they take time to contemplate its meaning. The word glory in the Old Testament is from the Hebrew word kabod, and in the New Testament is the Greek word doxa. It's the word that the Bible uses to describe the majesty of the manifest presence of God. The glory of God is the revealed magnificence of God. It's the excellence of God. It's the weight of his presence. I uh, got amused this week. I read something where someone was writing and said, oh, I got on the scales this morning and the glory of God was just all over me. <laughs> <laughs> Glory has to do with weight, the weight of his presence. That's why, by the way, sometimes when people are prayed for and they can't stand up, it's because of the weight of God's presence has come upon them. The glory is the brilliance of God, the brilliant splendor of God. It's his honor and his dignity. The glory of God is the part of him that you are able to see and continue to live. The glory of God <clears throat> is the part of him you are able to experience. And through seeing his glory and experiencing his glory, you are able to know that he exists. <clears throat> when the Bible talks about the glory of God being revealed, it's talking about God showing up and showing out. The glory of God is revealed throughout the pages of the Bible. The first time we see the revelation of his glory is in creation. You know, the Bible is very clear that the creation of this universe was not a random event. 
It wasn't an accidental collision of particles. It wasn't a chance bonding of molecules. This world and everything in it was a planned event. It has structure and organization. It has definition and purpose. In the beginning, God began with nothing but himself. And through the creative action of his spoken word, called into existence an awe-inspiring masterpiece so complex and diverse that there is a seemingly unending supply of mysteries to uncover. When he engages this act of creation, he begins with nothing more than a creative thought. No single-celled organism, no tiny part of an atom, no gas, solid or liquid, no beaker or test tube, no element from the periodic table. He's creating, which means he's taking nothing in order to make something. Maybe you've heard the story about the group of scientists who were fed up with the literal interpretation of Genesis and the creation story. So the scientists sent an emissary to talk with God about the whole thing. Their plan was to disprove the uniqueness of God's creative act by having a human-making contest. The scientists think they have it all figured out and that they can create a human being faster and better than God can. Well, God agrees to the contest and says to the scientist, well, you go first. So the scientist bends over to scoop up some dirt, but when he does, God interrupts him and says, oh no, that's my dirt. You get your own dirt. <laughs> see, see, we can transplant, but we can't make a plant. We can generate, but we can't originate. We can cultivate, but we can't create. We can take something and make something else out of it, but we can't make something out of nothing. <laughs> but when God began his creative work, he took nothing and made something and called it heaven. He rolled his hands around with nothing in them and spoke the word and made something and called it earth. He waved his hand across a vast void of emptiness and spoke the word and out of nowhere came bright spots of light. He called them stars. He pointed his finger and spoke the word and planets started revolving around the sun. And when he finally got through making all of that something out of nothing, he took that something and hung it nowhere on nothing and called it a universe. <laughs> No wonder the psalmist sang in Psalm 19 and 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. His glory is revealed in creation. Then I want you to see his glory revealed in his chosen people. As a sovereign act of his will and grace, God set apart the children of Israel as a nation through whom he would reveal his glory to all the people of the earth. He begins by revealing his glory to a wandering nomad from Ur of the Chaldeans named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And when he reveals his glory to that couple, a barren tent is filled with laughter as a son of promise is miraculously born to a couple in their old age. 
His glory is revealed as he wrestles all night with Jacob. And the supplanter and deceiver is changed into Israel, blessed by the Almighty. His glory is revealed in a burning bush in the midst of the desert. And a stuttering sheep herder becomes the deliverer of the people of God. His glory is revealed as he guides his people through the wilderness in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. His glory is revealed at the dedication of a building erected by King Solomon. And a house of wood and stone is turned into a temple of worship as the glory of God comes in to that temple in such magnitude that the priests are not able to stand and minister. His glory is revealed when three young men in exile refuse to bow down to a Babylonian idol made of gold and a fiery furnace becomes a sanctuary graced by the presence of the fourth man in the fire. His glory is revealed in the return of the exiles under Ezra and Zechariah and in the restored temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and in the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. And then there are 400 silent years, years in which there is no word from the Lord. Other nations are conquerors. Israel is again subservient. There is no holy smoke in the temple. There is no fire from heaven. There is no glory. It seemed the people of God had been forgotten when suddenly into the blackest of nights shined the light of the world. Into the stillest of silences a song burst forth. You know, some of the most exciting words in all the Bible are the first five words from our text. And the word became flesh. It was as if God was saying, you think my glory in creation was something. <laughs> you think my glory in my chosen people was something. Ah, you haven't seen anything until you've seen the great God of the universe become a human baby. You haven't seen anything until you've seen the Word become flesh, the incarnation, God with us in human form and substance. See, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my glory in the cradle. Think about it. This same God who spoke the world into existence, the same God who rolled back the waters of the Red Sea, the same God who is so vast that 2 Chronicles 2 and 6 declares the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. The very idea that this same God could somehow fit himself into a tiny microscopic cell planted in the womb of a virgin simply boggles the imagination. But the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary, and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. The glory of God visited her. Nine months later, the baby was born, the glory was revealed, and the stable became a holy place. The glory was revealed, and the angels sang, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. The glory was revealed, and the shepherds left their flocks on the hillside to go to Bethlehem to see this thing 
that the Lord had made known to them. The glory was revealed, and the star appeared in the heavens to announce the birth of the Messiah. The glory was revealed, and the wise men left homes and families and journeyed from a distant country to pay homage to him who was born king of the Jews into a time when hope seemed lost, into a time when dreams were shattered, into a time when God's promises seemed forgotten. The glory of the Lord was revealed. Faith became sight. Hope became certainty. Dream became reality. God showed up and showed out. See, his glory is revealed in creation. His glory is revealed in his chosen people. His glory is revealed in the cradle. Then I want you to see that his glory is revealed in the cross. The cross, instrument of cruel punishment and death. The cross, symbol of Roman justice. The cross, precious metal suspended from a chain and casually hung around the neck. What possible glory could be found in that? This is the good news of the gospel. Holy God and sinful man were separated by a great yawning chasm that could not be spanned. But on the cross, with one hand, this Jesus took hold of the hand of the heavenly Father, and with the other, he reached down to lost humanity. A divine connection was made. Redemption was accomplished. See, it was at the cross that the centurion looked into the face of a dying Christ and said, truly, This was the Son of God. At the cross, the earth was shaken. The graves were opened. The saints were resurrected from the dead and were seen walking on the streets of Jerusalem. At the cross, the final atonement for sin was offered and a new order was instituted. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And now whosoever will may approach God through Jesus. At the cross... Satan was once and for all defeated. At the cross, demons were put in their place. A public display was made of their defeat. At the cross, the bondage of sin was broken. At the cross, you were sanctified. At the cross, you were redeemed. At the cross, you were reconciled back to God. At the cross, you were given peace. At the cross, you were empowered to live the overcoming life. At the cross, you are able to see the great greatest demonstration of love that has ever been shown. For at the cross, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It was at the cross. It was the cross that brought about the fulfillment of the psalmist's song in Psalm 85 and 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The Apostle Paul understood the glory of the cross when he wrote in Galatians 6 and 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, the hymn writer William Newell understood the glory of the cross when he wrote, Years I spent in vanity and pride. Caring not, my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me, he died on Calvary. By God's word at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. 
till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And then he wrote the refrain, Mercy there was great and grace was free. <laughs> Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Aren't you thankful for the cross today? It's because of the glory of the cross that you can now see his glory in changed lives. Something I've noticed is that every time God's glory is revealed, something changes. When God's glory is revealed at the creation of the universe, void starts teeming with activity. Chaos becomes order. The morning stars sing together and the sons of God shout for joy. God's glory visits Mary and immediately things begin to change. Though still a virgin, she, she becomes pregnant. Nobody else knows about the angelic visit. They, they don't understand. All they understand is the natural. They know nothing of the supernatural. So people start to gossip about her. Her relationship changes with her fiancé, Joseph. She, in this pregnancy means that her hormones change. Her body changes to accommodate the new life growing within her. I want to tell you the same thing happens today. When you are touched with God's glory, you'll be able to see it in the changed life. And our text here lets us know how this change occurs. See, not only does the verse say that the Word became flesh and that the Word dwelled among us so that we could behold His glory, but then it says that His glory is full of grace and truth. And I want to tell you, that's how the transformation happens. Grace and truth. Grace is not only the undeserved favor of God, it is also the operational power of God. That is how God does what he does. It is by the power of his grace. And grace is God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Grace is God coming alongside and working within to create the change you cannot make happen on your own. Grace is what touches your life when his glory is revealed. His glory is full of grace, full of God's power, full of God doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. Not only that, but he says it's full of truth. Now, now truth is not just facts. Truth is not just information. Truth is the uncovering of that which is hidden. Truth is the unveiling so the light can shine in the dark places. 
That's why 2 Corinthians 3 and 18 says, but we all, watch this, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, what? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. See, if, if all you have is grace, then you have license and anything is permissible. Y'all with me? Is everybody still? Nobody fell out of the boat. Okay. If all you have is grace, you have license. Anything is permissible. Well, if all you have is truth, you have legalism. And it's harsh and it's judgmental. You know, people can kill you with the truth. If you have grace, you have license. If you have truth alone, you have legalism. But if you have grace and truth together, you have life. Now, see, I, I know what the circumstances of your life say. I know what your past tries to dictate. I, I know what your teachers told you. I know what your parents said about you. I know what your spouse thinks. I know the accusation of the enemy of your soul. But God comes with grace and truth. Grace and truth produce glory. Here's what he reveals about your life when his glory is present. Glory reveals that you are not bound by your past. Glory says that you are not bound by your circumstances. Glory says you are not doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Oh, oh, you may have a rotten past, but your past doesn't determine your future. You have been touched by his glory. So you are not rejected, but you are accepted in the beloved. You are no longer bound. You are free. You are no longer a slave. You're a child of the most high God. You are no longer defeated. You are victorious. When grace and truth are present, His glory brings healing to a battered life. When grace and truth are present, His glory mends a broken relationship. When grace and truth are present, His glory restores a wounded spirit. See, see, truth says you shouldn't, you shouldn't continue the way you're living. Grace says you don't have to. Truth says the way you're traveling is going to lead to destruction. Grace says there's another path. Truth says you're bound. Grace says you're free. Truth says you're condemned. Grace says you're forgiven. See, what, if, if you don't know the truth, you never understand the need for grace. But once you know the truth, you never take grace for granted again. Because grace and truth are present, you have been touched by his glory. And because of his glory, when you come into this Christmas season, you don't just worship the Jesus of Bethlehem. You don't worship just the Jesus of Nazareth. You don't just worship the Jesus of the Galilee. You, do, you don't just worship the Jesus of Jerusalem. You, you don't just worship the Jesus of the Mount of Olives. You don't just worship the Jesus of Calvary's cross. You, 
You don't just worship the Jesus of the empty tomb, but now this Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. He rules and reigns forevermore. He is worshiped today as King of kings and Lord of lords, sovereign over all the earth. Hallelujah. Now, in our text, John the Beloved writes, we have seen his glory. But when you get over to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, you find this same apostle writing about a very different revelation of God's glory. Because here, John writes about his glory revealed in the consummation of all things. In chapter 1 of the book of the Revelation, John says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I wish I had time to really unpack that. I wish I had time to remind you that John is on Patmos. I wish I had time to remind you that this is a, an island, it's a penal colony. And he's there with, with all of the prisoners, the worst of the worst. He's there... In hard labor. I wish I had time to talk about how it was there in hard labor. You didn't get days off. He was being punished for his faith. I wish I had time to tell you about what that meant when it says, I, John, your brother, was on the Isle of Patmos. I wish I could talk to you about that, but I don't have time to tell you about the hardship that he endured under the brutal son baking him. He's an old man, and he's condemned with no hope. They'd already tried boiling him in oil, and he wouldn't boil. And so they put him on the island. In the midst of the worst of the worst, when it's as bad as it could possibly be, oh, I wish somebody would get this, he said, on the Lord's day, I forgot about the fact that I was on Patmos. On the Lord's day, I remember, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is the Lord's day. This is the Lord's day. I, I found me, a, I found me a, a little nook, I found me a little cranny over here where I could get alone and I got in the... Oh, I saw all the, all the taskmasters and I saw all of the evildoers that I was... But somehow, because I was, I was tuned in to the sound of heaven, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how bad it is in your life, you can still get in the spirit. You can still worship him. You can still choose to get in the spirit. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Oh, I wish I had time to preach about that. I don't have time to do that. Because in verse 14 of that chapter, then he begins to tell about the revelation of God's glory he had on this day. And can I just tell you, if you'll get in the spirit on the Lord's day, he'll give a revelation of his glory to you. He, he got a revelation of God's glory. He says that this Jesus that was revealed to him is the faithful witness. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the firstborn from the dead. He loves you and saves you from your sin through his blood. He has made you into a kingdom of priests that you might worship him as God and as Father. He is coming, he says, with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. 
and all the world will mourn because of him. He goes on about this revelation. He says he is Alpha and Omega. He is the one who was and is and will be forevermore. He is the Almighty. And when John says, I saw him, I want you to know, he didn't see him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. He didn't see him walking on the shores of the Galilee. He didn't see him hanging on a rugged cross. He didn't see him wrapped in linen grave clothes. He didn't even see him standing by the empty tomb. Instead, he says, when I saw him, I saw him as the son of man in the very midst of the church walking among the seven golden lampstands holding the pastors of the churches which are the seven stars in his right hand and John said when I saw him I saw that he was clothed with a robe that reached down to his feet and around his waist he had a golden sash his head and his hair were white like snow as white as wool his eyes were as a flaming fire his feet were like fine brass burning in a furnace his voice was as the sound of many waters and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance, he said, was as the sun shining in all its strength. And then John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But he laid his hand on my head and said, fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and of hell. And that's the Jesus we worship today. Sovereign Lord of all the universe. That's who we bow before this day. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, just take another minute and give him praise in this house. Praise God. Praise God. Listen, all through this Advent season, I've been saying to you that this is the time of year to prepare your heart for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And what I want you to understand as you are preparing to celebrate this holy day is that Christmas isn't just a celebration of a long-ago event in history. But Christmas is God breaking into your world just when you need Him most. Christmas is Jesus coming to you sometimes when you least expect Him. And bringing the revelation of himself to where you live. Christmas is Jesus becoming flesh. And I like the way the message Bible says it. And moving into the neighborhood. <laughs> you see, God, God doesn't just want you to see his glory from afar. He doesn't just want you to see his glory painted in pastel colors. Or represented in stained glass. Or, or sung in beautiful anthems. He wants you to have a personal encounter with his glory. He wants your life to be impacted with his magnificence, his radiance, his grace, his truth. He wants to bring his power and be born in you. He wants this grace and truth to dwell in your life just as surely as his glory was in the Old Testament tabernacle in the wilderness and then again in the temple in Jerusalem. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 and 7 is talking about when it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. That's the meaning of Colossians 1.27. God willed to make known to his saints what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
See, what God has in mind for you this Christmas season is not just the revelation of his glory in creation or in his chosen people or in the cradle or in the cross or even at the consummation of the age. He wants to reveal his glory through a life that has been changed, transformed by the power of his grace and truth. God wants to reveal his glory in your life. He, he wants to show up and show out in your life right where you need him most. You know, years ago, we used to sing a chorus in old church that said, when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory. For all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. That's what Jesus has in mind for you this Christmas. He wants to touch your life with his glory. And when he does, then all is changed. Now, I want to pray with you today. I want to believe with you that your life is going to be touched and your life is going to be changed by the revelation of his glory. Regardless of what kind of trouble and problems you've brought with you today, regardless of the depth of your grief, regardless of how many times you've tried and failed, the Lord comes to you right now wanting to bring his power at the point of your need. He wants to touch you and usher you into a season of glory where grace and truth are multiplied and things change. I'm talking to someone who needs things to change. I'm talking to someone who needs God to show up and show out in your life. I want to invite you to bring those things to the Lord in prayer and believe him for the touch of his glory on your life. Bow with me, please. Lord, I thank you for your presence that I've sensed as we've shared in the preaching of your word. And now, Lord, I pray that this will be more than just a sermon, but it will be a message that will penetrate hearts and will cause people to, to dare to believe that this glory could come to their life at the point of their need. I ask, oh Lord, that you will unveil yourself to them and touch them with your glory, grace and truth. I pray, oh Lord, that you will, when you touch them, that you will change change their circumstance, change their attitude, change their demeanor, cha change their thought processes, cha change their lifestyle. I pray that things will change because of the entrance of your glory in their life. Lord, I don't know who's receiving that right now, but I just pray, Lord Jesus, that they will be receptive and that as they open themselves to divine revelation and the touch of your glory, you will not disappoint. But you will, you will fulfill your promise and things will change to the praise of your glory. Thank you for hearing our prayer.
Thank you for doing that. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I believe you right now that this week somebody's going to see the evidence of the manifestation of your glory producing change in their situation. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen.